Welcome to the third episode of the Strategic Voters Podcast. Today, we will be talking about election administration with Professor Lana Atkinson. Lana is a political science professor at the University of New Mexico. She is the director of the Center for the Study of Voting, Election, and Democracy. Welcome, Lana. I'm very happy to have you here today. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here today, too. You, you must be very busy during um, the general election and the midterm election. It, it is really busy during election season from a, you know, multiple angles. I usually have a lot of data collection stuff going on. There's a lot of media activity. Um, and there's, so there's a lot of noise going on and, and, and it's very busy. So, you know, we recently had the general election in 2020, a very bumpy ride, to say the least, um, what did the 2020 general election tell us about the way we administer our elections? We heard we heard there were problems with our elections from uh, many many people on the Republican side in terms of uh, voting by mail and whatnot. What did that entire experience uh, teach us? Well, I think that it highlighted one of the facts that it highlighted is that there are many different ways in which states administer elections and election administration and election laws. And they're, they're very different across the states. And, you know, that has sort of, you know, different, um, you know, responses from people. A lot of changes happened in 2020. I think that's a really important thing to note. We saw massive changes in our voting uh, behavior and in our laws. And some of those were based upon courts. Some of those were uh, legislatures changing the rules because of the pandemic. Um, you know, some of those were things that election administrators did uh, within their purview of rule promulgation uh, to assist with the uh, pandemic. So there were lots and lots of innovation and change. Um, in that election. So I guess I would say that our system is very flexible. That would be something that it, it showed us as well, that we were very flexible and we could adapt to the circumstances of the pandemic in a really um, positive way. We had a, an election. I think we had a successful election, um, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you know, most people felt that their, their individual votes, uh, they were confident that their vote was counted correctly. So I think that, you know, from many aspects, despite all the noise and rhetoric, you know, the election administration that went on, uh, you know, for the most part was uh, in keeping with an attempt to have both access and maintain integrity and promote finality, which are the three pillars of election administration. And all of those pillars, importantly, are in tension with one another. Right. They're all they're all sort of, you know, intention. And uh, that is the sort of balance that election administrators are working with uh, throughout the election and in every election, trying to balance those goals. Well, one of them you mentioned is integrity. And um, there's a large portion of the voting population that kind of lost faith in the in the election, you know, given what was being promoted about the results. What needs to be changed to at least have them rebuild their faith in the election and ensure that safety and integrity is still there? Well, I think a couple of things. I mean, one of the things I think to put it in context is I, I don't think it was, 
you know, there, there were some signs of, of greater concern in this election. But if we look back to say 2000, we can see that survey questions that, you know, asked about the integrity of that election and whether people were willing to accept the results and things like that, that it was very comparable um, or even higher in some cases in 2020 than it was in 2000. Um, you know, one of the things that I think that goes on is sort of in this, you know, hyper media and social media environment that we're living in is that things get amplified in a way that heightens their familiarity and belief. But when we look deep into the data, you know, sometimes we don't see it's quite as extreme or as, as, as bad as, as perhaps um, it sounds because of the rhetoric mm -hmm. and the amplification of messages in the, in the media environments that we put ourselves. I mean, that being said, it is clear that, uh, you know, Republicans were more concerned uh, than perhaps usual, especially about uh, the potential for fraud in places. But losers, you know, always have this concern. We can look back, for example, to the 2004 election when, you know, Democrats were very concerned about voter suppression. And we saw, um, you know, in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, we saw that Ohio, uh, you know, was questioned as to, you know, whether there was voter suppression going on that prevented, you know, a, um, um, a Democratic win. So, you know, we've seen this it, it, these things bounce back and forth between the parties and there are very strong loser effects, especially when there is a leader uh, who is amplifying that. So in 2004, it was, you know, Senator Boxer in particular who took the lead on that in the Senate um, and questioned those votes. Of course, in 2020, it was a presidential candidate which amplified that even greater. To be fair, there are all kinds of things going on across the country in terms of legislative actions um, to change the electoral system in response to the changes that were done in the pandemic. Some of those are creating more access. Some of those are creating, uh, you know, more integrity. And they're trying to balance those, you know, three pillars that I mentioned in the beginning. So. I think that that is a response. Those legislative responses across the country are a response to people's concern um, yeah. about the process in 2020, um, both in terms of creating greater access and creating greater integrity. You know, both 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 those things are happening across the country, um, and and that's clearly in response to a, you know what happened um, in that election and the changes that were made. Um, in an emergency sort of situation. And which ones of those do we wanna keep? Which one of those do we wanna roll back, right? And so those dialogues are, are definitely happening. And you know this you know, threat of fraud and integrity is a part of that discussion. And, and it should be just like access and integrity should be, or access um, and suppression, I guess, as, as the flip side of that should be also considered. Okay, and then do you think the country is ready to consider alternative ways? So we have, you know, uh, vote by mail options, but do you think the country is ready to establish a new way 
to administer elections in terms of the technological capabilities and just people's confidence. For example, are we ready to administer elections online where we have video verification of the voter and then have voters actually just go online and vote? Is that something you, you foresee in the, in the future? You know, I think in the long run, yes, but I think in the short run, you know, the computer scientists are not very favorable to electronic voting at all. You know, every computer scientist who I've talked about this, which is actually a lot, and I've been to a lot of talks on this, they all say that there are serious integrity problems with online and e-voting, that all systems are hackable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's just within that community, there hasn't been a set of people who've said, yeah, we're ready to go forward and tell the, you know, technological people, the computer scientists sort of give us that cue. I think it's going to be hard to um, implement. But I do think in the long run, you know, that makes a lot of sense. There are places, Estonia, for example, Estonia is the E country around the yeah. world. They do everything E. That's right. Yeah. And uh, they have E voting. Other places are experience, uh, experimenting with E voting. There are there are local elections in the United States that have have been uh, experimenting with online voting. Uh, local elections are are not under federal guidelines and stuff like that. So there's a big difference. And so there are places where there are experimenting with them. It's hard to not imagine that there's not going to be some vote app at some point. Maybe you, maybe you do that in person, maybe you vote and maybe you just go to your precinct and you think, right. right? Share your app, you share your vote that way. There might be, so there might be sort of mid, things where maybe we're not doing it at home. You're still going there, but it's, it's a little bit more technologically advanced. Yes. I think yeah. that's, you know, I mean, long-term, but, you know, I don't see that happening in 2022 or 2024. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because that's sort of my theoretical frame for how I think about um, voting. And I've been thinking a lot about this tension between these things and, and, and how different groups of people might respond to that tension because, you know, we really have this interesting sort of dynamic between conservatives and liberals. And I, I you know, and I would argue that liberals tend to um, privilege access over integrity. And they look at, you know, every person who might be denied the right to vote, you know, that's, you know, that is sort of a sacred event. That's, that's this problem we want to, you know, we, we want to deal with, we, we don't want to have any of that. So they privilege access in a way over integrity. And I think conservatives have the other, you know, they, they look at the world in a, in a different way. And for conservatives, it's like, you know, it's, it's integrity. And the fact if we have even small amounts of fraudulent voters, that that dilutes the vote of eligible uh, electors. And so I think that that's an interesting, you know, there's this, this different way and people are privileging different, different things. And, you know, from a Jonathan Haidt perspective, I think, you know, liberals are making, both liberals and conservatives make the ballot uh, sacred. The ballot is sacred for both liberals and conservatives, but it's sacred in a different way. One, again, privileging access and one pri- privileging integrity because of how they view those different, um, those different perspectives um, in, in, in terms of how it affects their attitude towards the vote themselves, right? How they see that uh, play out. 
And I think that's, I think that's important to think of, you know, when, when we think about these things, because I, I think that, you know, especially like academics, like myself, we tend to privilege um, access um, over integrity. And I think we need to at least have some intellectual humility on this and think about sort of how the two sides are looking at this differently and how that affects their attitudes and behaviors. Interesting. So access versus integrity. This brings me to the uh, um, Georgia laws that were passed or the Georgia voting law that was just passed. And um, the highlight online, at least, right, and in, in the media, the highlight of that topic is the fact that it makes it a crime to pass water and food to people waiting in line. People on the left, of course, are questioning how is that not made or decided in bad faith? Why is that even uh, an issue to be discussed? I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so most states have some sort of electioneering laws that are anti-electioneering in you know, voting locations, in voting lines. So most states have laws that say, you know, you can't wear a button when you go vote that says, you know, vote for candidate X. You can't wear that. You can't wear a t-shirt. They'll come up to you, ask you to take off the button, you know, take your t-shirt off and turn it over. So there are laws on electioneering in most states and, and quite a number of states have laws on uh, giving out food and water to people. And it's about electioneering. It's about what is the appropriate role for campaigns to be doing in an election situation, in an election line where people are voting, right? And the kinds of potential pressures or nudges that you're giving to people in that situation. And so giving out food and water to people in line, you know, maybe there's a humanitarian need, but is it the appropriate place for the campaign to provide those items, right? I, I've been in precincts, so we do not have laws in New Mexico. We have laws that um, we have electioneering laws, but we don't have any, you know, food and water laws. Um, right. And, you know, I've been in a precinct before when a candidate walks in with pizza oh, and okay. sodas and, you know, they're feeding the voters and they're feeding the um, uh, uh, poll workers. In 2008, the President Obama's campaign, you know, dropped off food and water to poll workers, uh, you know, throughout some of the larger counties. You know, it's hard to say. I mean, to, to me, that seems like electioneering and should be banned. You know, I mean, just I have in writing numerous times, I have written that we should change our laws and not allow candidates to come in to a precinct and give out pizza and drinks. And, right. um, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, there are other people who can give out drinks, but to have a campaign do that, you know, creates this you know, question of integrity and, and nudgeness. So in 2014 here in New Mexico, uh, the gubernate, the um, Sandoval County, which is uh, the urban part of that county is pretty Republican. They moved to vote centers and they literally had five hour lines. And the governor of the state who was on, you know, the top race on the ballot, you know, saw all these lines There were, you know, choppers out there in the news media watching these lines. 
Um, and her campaign went down there and started giving people in line food and water. Now, does that lead to more Republicans staying in line than Democrats? Does that, you know, lead to someone going, well, gee, I feel really good about this person right now. Does that change my vote intent at the last minute? We know that people who vote in churches are more likely to, you know, vote pro-life. People who vote in, uh, you know, in schools are more likely to support um, bonds for schools and education. So are these there are these very subtle nudging effects, right, that happen, um, and we can pick them up in data. It's it seems to me, you know, not a good idea to have. Um, uh, you know, opportunities for those nudging by campaigns. Now, you know, that's that's a pretty standard sort of integrity measure, I would say, around the world. I mean, if we look back at Mexico, for example, Mexico used to be a one-party state, and the PRI, um, you know, would give out bags of potatoes to people, <laughs> right? And, you know, we were just completely critical of that. You know, what are you doing giving out bags of potatoes? Okay. You know, that's just, that's, that's vote buying. Mm -hmm. In Argentina, I remember reading once that they would literally put people onto buses, fed them, and then drove them to the um, precinct, right? Drove them to the election center and had them vote. That's considered vote buying. Right. You know, I know we live in a democracy where we feel like these things um, you know, don't happen, but the reason they don't happen is because we have laws that prevent them. So, okay. you know, I'm sympathetic to people in line. If there are long lines, you know, that's a drag. And, you know, I understand why people didn't plan for that. Right. Um, and, but at the same time, I understand also why those laws were put into place um, to do that. See, this explanation would be a reasonable one. It is not the one that's given by the congressmen and women, though, like the GOP members, um, like Lindsey Graham, I believe it was on Fox, um, didn't know what to say. He was like, yeah, I agree, that makes no that part makes no sense, but then he just went on to talk about these other issues, right? Is that not a, a universal understanding? Because it, I feel like if, if it was, someone like Lindsey Graham would bring that up, right, on Fox News. Yeah, it would have been a good idea for him. I, you know, I mean, I think that is a universal, you know, understanding among people who study elections and, right. but I, I don't know if Lindsey Graham studies elections or, you know, maybe he needed to be better prepared about what those reasons are, or maybe that's not the thing he really wanted to talk about. I, but I, I guess I think that's probably underlying that why, you know, that was put in there, right? I think that that, I mean, I think underlying that is this idea that it's a vote buying thing. I mean, if we look at the state of Georgia, for example, you know, they have automatic voter registration. I mean, mm -hmm. if, if I wanted to suppress the vote, I would not have automatic voter registration. That's a very good point. So you mentioned intellectual humility. Um, I actually listened to your uh, webinar on that topic, and it was an excellent one. I'd love for you to go back to that and just touch on it a bit more. I do feel like both sides need to, to, to talk more, right? Especially after the 2020 election or after the year 2020 in general, right? Because it created this very polarized environment 
and you know both sides seem to be at least the the ones that you talk to you know your friends and family both sides seem to be very uh, you're either with us or against us you know they, they seem to have that uh, attitude so I'd love for you to touch on on that the intellectual humility part yeah yeah I mean I think we need more intellectual humility more than ever um, it's 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 a commodity that is is not available uh, as it should be and yeah there there's just something going wrong when everything is politicized and um, you know people really are more intolerant of even their friends and family than ever I think that's that's you know highly you know this isn't normal that's certainly not normal politics I mean we can think back to you know a, a long time ago and I don't think that we we had this kind of ongoing tension in in families um you know with spouses and things like that that we're seeing today or in workplaces i just looked at my data in new mexico and i ask a question you know have you been discriminated you know based upon your race or ethnicity and 33% of people agreed with that but when I, I added this question just a couple of years ago, have you ever been discriminated against based upon your political beliefs? And that was 45% of people agreed with that. So more people believe, right, that they're being discriminated against because of what they believe than their identity. And, you know, I, I don't think most people would, would, would think that's probably likely in the aggregate, but that's what the data is suggesting. Um, we're seeing, uh, I think I saw there was during one of the legislative sessions, I don't remember what state it was, there was a, a member of a legislature that actually, you know, wrote a bill saying that uh, political partisanship would be a protected class, right, because we're seeing also in experiments, a lot of experiments that, you know, political partisanship and your beliefs are, are, more telling in whether or not you get a job again than uh you know race or ethnicity effects or gender effects that you know we think have been long-term issues within employment but it seems that partisanship and and beliefs are becoming a central uh factor in decision making in of employment and that's that's just you know that's really disturbing um that you know all of our spaces are becoming uh, very, very political. And, you know, intellectual humility is the idea that we need to, you know, come together um, and recognize mostly that people come to their positions earnestly and that those are honest positions that they start with. They're not you know, and, and that we need to listen to them. It doesn't mean we need to agree with them, but we need to hear what they're saying and understand it. And through that understanding, it helps to, you know, moderate ourselves and also uh, have more empathy towards the other side and their perspectives on the world. Makes sense. Did you have any final thoughts? I mean, we talked about the Georgia case. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I think it might be worth talking a little bit more about that. I mean, I mean, that's a really good example of, you know, what's going on when, you know, Major League Baseball, you know, and a bunch of other companies, Coca-Cola, Delta, American, when all of these companies are 
politicizing um, a democratic process. I mean, from my perspective as a political scientist, you know, those legislators in Georgia were elected democratically and they have, you know, a right and a responsibility to um, in, enact laws. And to say that that democratic process is somehow sort of, you know, fundamentally wrong and for economics, like, like it's one thing. So, I mean, I think this is really interesting because, you know, tribalism um, is political, right? So we can say, okay, well, you know, we have the parties and there's tribalism and that's increased and there's increased polarization. Um, but politics for most people, it's more of a hobby, right? It's not, yeah. <laughs> it's a hobby. And so it doesn't really matter if I'm right or wrong most of the time. I mean, it doesn't matter whether I get the right answer because it doesn't usually affect me, right? I can, I can talk about Georgia and, you know, they're suppressing the vote and, you know, whatever. And you know, that doesn't really affect me and it doesn't do anything. But when you start bringing in economics, right? And you start, you know, like, like you know, people feeling discriminated because of their political beliefs. When you, you know, start bringing, you know, you take a baseball game and you move it to another state. I, I hear they're thinking about Colorado. To me, it seems like you can, you can have political rancor. But then when you create an economic dimension to that, and that possibly affects people, you're bringing it down to the personal level, and that's going to affect votes. Right. So all the noise that doesn't affect votes, that doesn't affect, you know, people already know their camps. But when you start making things about their economic livelihood, you really have the possibility of impacting uh, the election, right, of changing votes, people, you know, deciding they're going to vote differently than before. And so, you know, I think there was actually um, I saw someone had a poll about, you know, should corporations do that? And it was easily a majority of people were like, no, this is a bad idea. Right. I, I think that's, I mean, I, I don't know. I think that's something to think about, you know, what's going on there. Um, and that there's this different dimension to these things. And when we, when we're exploiting politics into a different uh, dimension than politics, the carryover effect there is going to manifest differently in the long run. The impact of their decisions to politicize uh, sports, to politicize, I think I saw, I mean, another attitude, right? I mean, 30, over 30% 30 of people are saying they're watching sports less because they've been politicized. Interesting. Right? I mean, that's, you know, so, I mean, it might have an economic effect to, uh, to the sport themselves. I think basketball's, uh, you know, seen a lot of declines this year. Right. Um, you know, is that going to come back? Was that just a pandemic? Um, or was that something having to do with, you know, the politicization of basketball? We'll see. Um, and I think that they're actually taking uh, actions to sort of limit some of their politicization because they think that that did play a role in their ability to make the kind of money they want to be making. Right. Um, right. So, you know, what can we do? I mean, I think that the, the thing is that this has, you know, this has political implications for businesses. Um, my guess is in the long term, it's not going to be healthy for them to do these kinds of things because people, you know, will react negatively. You know, I mean, it's going to be what is 
what is the all-star game? How many people are going to watch that now because they've, you know, it's been politicized in this way. I, you know, I, I can't imagine people not taking Delta or American or, right. you know, whatever um, because of these things. Um, but I think that there are sort of potential for backlash effects Right when you move politics into all kinds of areas of public life that haven't that it hasn't been there before, and um, you know whether that's you know people changing their votes from one party to the other, or whether that's potential you know boycotting or you know less interest in in uh, you know watching sports for example. Um, remains to be fully seen, but I think it's a dangerous, I think it's a dangerous um, enterprise to be mixing politics with all of these other things. And I, I, that's probably not a very popular thing to say, actually, (laughs) (laughs) but I think that it's, I do think it's a dangerous um, I do think it's very dangerous. I, I, you know, we got something that the American founders really got right was we separated religion from politics. And we did that on purpose because we knew that religion was such a divisive element to people's lives. And if, you know, so we sort of separated that, but if we, you know, have evolved into a world where you know, politics is just everywhere, and maybe politics is itself its own religion, then we've, we've brought that back into the process and we've created a, a dangerous uh, environment for potential conflict. This is wishful thinking, but maybe bringing politics into everything, maybe they'll have the opposite effect. Maybe people will be, be like, you know what? Let the parties fight. Let them do whatever they want. We'll just live our lives and get along, and then you know we'll go to the to the ballot box to vote. I mean, wishful thinking, but maybe that's going to be the limit for people. You know, it's, you push people to believe something, you push them, and you push them, and then you get their favorite enterprises and favorite brands pushing the same messages on them, whether they agree with it or not. At some point, the consumer has to say, "Enough is enough." If I like Coke, I'm going to drink Coke. I don't care what you guys believe. I have to believe that that's going to be the case, right? I mean, if you politicize as a household, as a private citizen, any household politicize every single thing, like, oh, I can't buy Coke because they said this. I can't buy Pepsi <laughs> because they said that. That's, that's going to be tiring and it's going to get old very fast. And eventually, you know, you'll stop caring. I'll be like, oh, I'm going to buy whatever is convenient, whatever is being sold, you know, next door and at the, you know, at the store next, next to my place. I think that's really interesting because we've been sort of looking at how people regulate their emotions Mm -hmm. and how they deal with things politically. And it seems that, you know, people deal with emotions differently, of course, in their personal life where you have to always engage. But, you know, know, one of the unique things about politics is you don't have to engage, right? You can just drop out. You can regulate your emotions by just saying, I'm done. Right. (laughs) I'm not listening to the news anymore. I'm not reading the newspaper. I know what I feel. The engagement of these brands, though, kind of forces it down people's throats. That you, yeah. you kind of have to be engaged because, hey, you're consuming our, our product uh, in some way or another. 
we're, we'll we'll let you know where we stand. And uh, I mean, your friends are probably going to tell tell you about it. Your colleagues are going to tell you about it. I I completely agree. I mean, it's definitely too much. I mean, it's interesting to think that that might have a demobilizing effect, which is sort of what you're saying. You know, you're right. suggesting that it might have this demobilizing. But I, I think the problem with the demobilizing effect, and I, and maybe that's what we are seeing now in some ways, is it leads to the most extreme voices being the loudest because you know they're the ones that aren't perturbed by these things that aren't affect they don't drop out right right and you know we're definitely living in an environment where extreme voices and extreme uh understandings of the world are getting a lot more attention and airtime um and moderates you know are yeah are living their daily lives and you know they're 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 kind of, you know, we're done with, with politics for now. Well, we'll come, we'll see you in two to four years. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. We'll see you in 2022 and we'll reassess then. I mean, one thing that's interesting to me about democracy is, you know, it's really the opposite of expertise, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, democracy is about people making choices based upon their lived experiences. Right. And it's not about experts at all. Right. And we often, it seems like, I don't know, it seems like sometimes we miss that central point. Mm-hmm. Um, or we think experts should have more play in the system than they do. Again, people are experience, experiencing things on their ground, their own economic conditions, um, you know, what's happening in their workplace. And, and these things are impacting, you know, people's decisions. So I would, and, and especially now more than ever, I think there's, there's more going on under the hood of each party than is has been typical, right? I, you know, so again, for example, on my survey, um, you know, I, you know, I have a question about partisanship, and you know, I these a bunch of people wrote in, you know, I'm a progressive, not a Democrat. Right, right, yeah, interesting. What does that mean? You know, what is that? So that's like a whole little thing going on under the right. Party. That's the what they're what they're calling for the last four years this um, little civil war in the Democratic Party between the establishment uh, Democratic candidate supporters and then the ones who support Bernie Sanders and the one who support Elizabeth uh, Warren. Um, there's definitely a, a divide within the party, just like there's a divide right now within the Republican Party, you know, the, the hardcore Trump supporter versus the regular Mitt Romney supporter, right? Or someone like Mitt Romney. It, it's, it's very interesting that, that you saw that. I'm progressive, not a Democrat. Yeah. And, and I was really like, I, I have people evaluate, you know, um, you know, like thermometer scores to liberals and conservatives. And, you know, I would expect that to just sort of match partisanship, but actually, you know, progressives had a higher um, thermometer score than liberals and conservatives. What was stunning was conservatives. People were, were you know, had a higher score for conservatives than liberals in terms of their thermometer, which is, I mean, just on average, which in, this is a very democratic state. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's very surprising to me. Um, and I think that's, a, that's because there's so much going on under the hood and the Overton window, you know, in, in both parties has been pushed outward. And, you know, I think a lot of people feel really uncomfortable with that. I was actually talking talking about this with um, our previous guest, Rachel Cobb. We were talking about that, um, how the introduction of Bernie Sanders to the uh, Democratic Party and then the introduction of Donald Trump to the Republican Party kind of made that happen. Because uh, at least 
for me, I never heard of the, you know, the progressive agenda. I heard of it from like, you know, the Republican candidates before 2016 as a, like a smear campaign type thing on their Democratic opponent. But in a serious manner, I never really heard it until Bernie Sanders got introduced and was a serious contender. Because before that, Bernie Sanders was, was an independent for the longest time in Congress. Yeah. So, and I, I feel like Bernie Sanders just understood that for me to have any real shot at the presidency, I need to be one of the two teams, you know, one member of the, of the two major teams, Republican or Democrat. I will not make it as an independent. I don't want to say he created that divide, but he certainly helped in creating that um, divide between the moderate Democrat and the more progressive Democrat. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think I think he has. And, and um, you know, it, it highlighted this sort of, you know, I mean, you know, one problem, right, is we have this this two party system and, and it, that's a very blunt instrument, of mm-hmm. course, to convey people's preferences. And, you know, why do we have a two party system? Well, we have a two party system because we have a, you know, plurality based voting system, which promotes two parties. Right. And, you know, it doesn't make sense to vote for a third party because when you vote for a third party, you get zero representation. Right. right. There's no representation. So you'd, you'd need some sort of proportional kind of representation that promotes, you know, multi-partyism right. the kind of system we have doesn't really do that. And that means that under each hood, there's a, there's just so much going on. Do you see us ever moving away from that and actually having or adding a third and fourth and fifth party that has a real chance at winning major offices? You know, I, I mean, unless there was some sort of state movement, I mean, that's where it would have to start. You'd have to have some sort of state movement that said, you know, we're not going to follow this first past the post system anymore. We're going to have, you know, uh, some sort of ballot where we're electing people within different parties. And, you know, I mean, just change their system completely to not being dyadic, right? But some sort of collective-based representation system. I, I don't certainly see that happening at a national level to start with. But I mean, you could imagine some states uh, attempting to experiment with that at some point in time. You know, some states only have one, you know, Nebraska only has a unicameral uh, legislate, uh, legislature. So you could imagine states, you know, maybe trying to explore these kinds of alternative systems. I mean, you certainly see that with ranked choice voting. That's right. a big thing right now uh, that states are experimenting with. Massachusetts just rejected it, actually. Um, mm. Massachusetts voters just rejected it in the November election. Okay. Um, but, you know, Maine embraced it. <laughs> and Maine's doing, you know, uh, ranked choice voting on, on every and every like so you know there are always reforms to the system there are always you know people are always seeking frankly more democracy and so that seems like that should at some point naturally lead to to you know maybe we need more parties mm-hmm. um it seems like a lot of that movement goes away from that to we need no parties at all right <laughs> to be right one of the sort of you know, look at California, right, where you live. I mean, the two-tiered system is, I think it's just a crazy system. It it doesn't right. promote innovation. I mean, you know, when two people are in the same party and, 
they're competing against each other for statewide office. I mean, are they offering, offering different ideas? <laughs> are they, you know, I mean, people tell me, oh, it's about competence. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> that seems like, mm, I don't know. It's probably about <laughs> ethnicity or gender that people end up voting the way they do. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a huge factor. And honestly, I mean, in, in statewide elections, I feel like the situation is a little bit different than presidential elections and, and Congress elections because most people barely know who's on the ballot. And right, if there's a, a D and an R, then you'll probably vote your party. Maybe that's part of the problem that these smaller campaigns don't have the funding to get out there in front of people. Because that's, that's the only reason why we know about all these presidential candidates is because they're on TV, whether it's paid or not, right? They're on interviews. They have a lot of media coverage. Yeah, it's hard for them to get through the noise, right? There's like, you know, if you're in a presidential election, the presidential election is so loud that it's really hard to get that legislative district, you right. know, even even in your sites. Yeah. You know, you're not going to hear that much about it. And, you know, that's why a lot of state elections move to off-year elections. I mean, that... That was something that happened at some point. You know, it used to be everything was on presidential years, right. but then states were like, man, our, our state politics is being overwhelmed by presidential politics and we'd like to have our own discussions. And so that's when we saw states moving their uh, statewide offices. And still some states, you know, have, have, have it during the presidential, but most states have moved to, um, you know, a midterm yeah. process in response to that specific point. Very good. I'm happy to hear that there's some progress there, at least. Lana, this was a great discussion. I'm glad that I had a chance to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Lana. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast. Our podcast is available on all major platforms. Thank you.